Okay, I'm out walking. Favorite place to talk. It's uh, chilly. Um, we had some snow. No, not so much snow. We just had like ice. So it's treacherously slippery, but I think I can keep upright and uh, keep my pack moving so I get a good workout. So here's the problem as, as I've laid it out. Okay, the problem is that if you had random trades, money migrates into the hands of a few, randomly. If you have meritorious, wise trades, then money migrates into the hands of a few who deserve it. And if you play a game until one person has all the money, then you play until everyone else has gotten to zero at some point in time. And playing the game and losing is not as bad as not being able to play the game. I'm guessing that that's a product of meaning. Playing the game and losing has meaning. Not being able to play the game has no meaning. Both end up with similar results. That's my best guess. It's about meaning. So, socialism purports, and the reason why we're, we're having another bout with socialism is socialism purports to address this issue. Now, that every single time we've tried socialism, we have ended up with petty tyranny, um, with, with incredible power, and incredible ability to enforce their power, seems not to matter because this question keeps emerging. And the problem is that the conservative side of the aisle in United States politics has basically accepted the fact that money will migrate into the hands of a few and says, well, at least we have a country where it migrates into the hands of the deserving few. Because if people who have worked hard are rich, it's better than people who have done nothing. The problem is you can find exceptions for that. That's the problem when it comes to the argument. But the fundamental problem to that is that it overlooks how it is that you can have everybody increase in satisfaction. And that is truly the free enterprise ideal. The free enterprise idea is that in a perfect trade, I get more of what I want, which you valued less, and you get more of what you want, which I valued less. And it is that, that exchange of goods, the free market exchange of goods that allows higher degrees of satisfaction for everyone involved in the trade. Now. To that ideal, the biggest obstacle is the fact that money migrates into the hands of a few. So if we are going to have the maximum number of people playing the game, we have to do a couple things. First of all, we have to ensure that 
people get to play the game. That that every time you go around in Monopoly, you keep people alive long. You could just deal out the money at the beginning and you'd have the same effect. Some people would win on spots, land on spots and win. Some would land on spots and lose. But part of keeping the Monopoly game going a little bit longer is that each time around you pass go and you collect $200. You collect the ability to play a little bit longer. And so if you're going to have a game that, that lasts, you have to have some mechanism to constantly renew your ability to participate in the game. And that has to be at a low level, right? I just talked about that. Zero in the United States looks like the fact that once you don't have anything, you don't have enough to try to play the game that would get you something, which is called a job. And you can't even break into that without... I'm sorry, you can, but it's very difficult and increasingly difficult to break into that. If you don't have any money, you don't even have a phone number for them to call you back. And the number of businesses that are doing the kind of work where they would let someone walk in off the street and prove that they could work hard are negligible. So what we need is some mechanism that you can play, that your ability to play is constantly renewed. And the second thing we need is to have some aspect of redeal. There has to be some point at which you say, when we reach this point, we're going to start the game over again so that everyone can participate. Okay, my example was sorry. You play sorry until one person wins, and if you can stand to play it again, you all start again at the same place. Whereas Monopoly, you all gradually become more and more disengaged, more and live more and more meaningless existence until one person has it all and everybody else feels like giving up. Now, I will tell you that the redeal is a fact of life. When you get everything, look out. The redeal is coming. Now, it hasn't always been a socialist redeal. The story, uh, the history of of the, the Bible is one of all of the power going into the hands of one or two. And they frittered away and then they're taken over by another king who has all of the power. And so the people never get the redeal. But in the modern age, probably thanks to gunpowder, the pattern is this. Maybe it started a little earlier than gunpowder. Um, French Revolution, Russian Revolution, uh, throughout. Um, and most of them have been driven by some sort of socialist ideal. But the redeal is coming. So if you're looking for an ideal, you would find some social mores, some, some rule that would require that you give people a constant reset on the game to to continue them playing, even for very low stakes, okay? But you would also 
have worked into there some sort of partial redeal so that once you're disengaged in the game, you can look forward not to when you have enough power to overthrow the whole system and trample it under feet, but you can look forward to the time when you will have a greater opportunity restored to you. I got to about this point. Thank you to Jordan Peterson. I was listening to, to what he said. I was thinking about these things on my own. And I realized that this system was established a very, very long time ago in the Mosaic Law. Now, the Mosaic Law was a, we think of the Mosaic Law as being the Ten Commandments. But then following the Ten Commandments were, were rules which enabled the Ten Commandments. This is a talk for another time of what the difference of those are. But one of those rules that augmented the Ten Commandments, probably an embellishment upon the thou shalt not covet, which is just the, the most fascinating, I think, of the Ten Commandments. Um, for, for this reason, we'll talk more about it sometime. But the, Thou shalt not covet. Every other law, you had the victim's wanted enforcement. So if, if you stole from me, I wanted you to be stopped. I didn't want you to steal any longer. So I could turn you into whatever would enforce that. I, I, if you're lying about me, I want you to stop. Problem is, if you are coveting me, I kind of want you to continue. Fascinating, fascinating law. It's also a law about thought crime. And uh, it, it is that that convinces me that the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, are best understood as a descriptive law. All that is to say that in addition to the Ten Commandments, there are these other laws. And one of those laws made it very clear that you had to pay your employees at the end of each day. Later on in James, and, and it just it gets completely ignored. I can tell stories about how completely ignored it is. But James says, the wages of the workmen who you hired are crying out against you. They're not saying the excesses, your extravagance, the fact that you're the executive who earns 50 times as much as your, your employee. No, it says the wages that belong to them that you kept are calling out against you. Why is that? It is because we very carelessly and primarily to give additional enforcement to employers, right? The fear is that if you pay people every day, they may not come back. And that's a very real fear. And probably the thing that will make them come back is not the money you're giving them. It's the dignity with which they're treated. But nevertheless, I, I don't think that was a surprise to, to God. I don't think he said, oh, I never expected that. I think that, that God said, I know that. But if you don't bear that burden, then you have a very different burden to bear. And that is that people get to zero. And once they get to zero, zero looks a little bit 
like the gap that the employers have withheld money, right? If you pay people every two weeks, then you have to have two weeks worth of resources to try to get a job. Now, I recently talked to an employer. He said, I'd pay him every day if that was make or break for someone that it was really good. Well, how would they ever find out? How would you ever find out they were really good? And then when I said, okay, yeah, it's make or break, but you'd pay them every day. What would that look like? Do you think you could get your your accountant to agree? I don't know. There's a ton of rules. Do you think the state of Minnesota would let you? No, no. It, it would be crazy. I agree. It'd be a ton of questions. But what I am telling you is that way back then, when the covenant for Israel was established, there was a very specific provision that was to socialist approve their community. And that was everyone who woke up past go and collected one day that they could work. And that was valuable. Now, I, I get it. Maybe we're past that point, right? Because our work is a different kind of work. And it, uh, yes, maybe it is, but there's still a lot of work that just plain doesn't get done because we don't have people willing to do it. And I think if employers had to provide, had to, I don't know how you'd enforce this, but I think if employers were felt compelled by God to provide work that would be available to anyone who showed up, paid not by the hour, but by the piece, I think we might turn this country around. I've sat in an awful lot of treatment meetings. I've visited hundreds of people in jail. And I think it's the single biggest thing that we could do to alter recovery. And that would be to make sure that whoever you are, there is some work you could do. Now, I know you couldn't pay them by the hour. Why? Because some of them need six smoke breaks an hour. But if you had work that was monetized by the unit and said, however much you do, I will pay you for that at the end of this day. Then on the day, and maybe that day happens one in ten, but on the day that that person said, I am sick of my life, I want to change, they would be able to go. And maybe all that they would earn is enough money to buy their own cigarettes instead of begging them, which is a horrible decision and a horrible habit and unwise and probably explains why they have so little. But that person who one day out of ten is choosing to do the right thing is a lot more likely to choose to do the right thing two days out of ten. I got my fingers up. I'm waving them around because I'm excited. But you see what I mean? Is if the guy who would do it one day out of ten would be more likely to be to do it two days out of ten. And the guy who's doing it two days out of ten would be a whole lot more likely to do it three days out of ten. But right now, the person who is consistently making bad decisions, when they decide they want to make a good decision, the reward is so far distant. They would have to put together 
This is another way of looking at zero, right? They've been making bad decisions. That's why they're at zero. Although bad luck may have something to do with it. Oppression may even have something to do with it. I don't know. I'm not going to argue that those don't exist. But I will argue that some of it is bad decisions. And so they are at zero because of a string of bad decisions. And we are telling them that unless you can make good decisions for five weeks in a row, 35 days of good decisions, one right after another, before you get to see the reward of making a good decision. Now, that's not exactly true. Okay, because very often the bad decisions that they're making are making their lives worse, right? And so for 35 days, making, consistently making good decisions may in fact be saving them from a whole lot of bad consequences. But those are theoretic. They can't see them. So maybe for 35 days, things aren't as bad as they could be before finally one day things are better than they were. And we wonder why so many have checked out. And those people who have checked out are wandering around waiting for somebody to give them some sort of hope. And when that hope is, well, the system isn't fair, and those rich fat cats are stealing everything from you, it resonates. Not in their intellect, but it's the only positive thing they've heard. And, and thousands of years ago, in a coherent system which addressed morality, but also clearly addressed social responsibility and economic obligation, they codified, didn't make the top 10 list, but they codified the necessity to give everyone the sense that today you are given something of value. You can trade this day in and get something in return. And we let that go. Did we get rid of it? I don't know. I don't know that I saw anyone attack it, but I would say that it is so gone. It is so distant. And, and even if there are some people who would say, well, it might be, I have never heard of someone who saw it as an important part of the expression of their faith. Not in Judaism, not in Christianity. And I, I know, I don't know whether I know a lot or not, but I mean, that's who I've hung out mostly with, people from the Judeo-Christian tradition. And I have not yet met anyone who, who made this an issue. I have heard of only a couple spurious stories. I'm not sure whether I believe them, but I'm not sure most people can even tell that story. They don't know what they're looking at when they see it. So... This Mosaic Law has this incredible socialist avoidance mechanism. And we're wondering why we're facing socialism again. It's because socialism answered a question. We had a better answer. 
but we didn't implement it. So we're looking at socialism again. It wasn't the only answer in the Mosaic Law. Right? The two things that I theorized were necessary was a way to keep people playing. Because remember, playing and losing is more meaningful than not getting to play. But the other thing that you need is you need a redeal. You need to be able to focus on when it is that you're going to be able to redeal. And amazingly, in the Mosaic Law, there was a three-tiered redeal. Okay, the first tier is that every day you wake up and say, I was given today and I can trade it. Nobody can take that from me. Whatever I can trade it for, I get. But then, at the seven-year mark, everyone received an inheritance of land. And if you consistently made bad decisions, it might become necessary for you to divest yourself of that land. Land takes upkeep and land has a value which you could, which you could sell. So, you would, when you had made such a, such a mess of your life that you needed, you would say, okay, I guess I gotta sell my land. Now, when you sold your land, you sold it knowing that seven years from now, you got it back. Well, maybe when you were going to sell it, you didn't like that. Because the purchaser certainly wasn't going to pay you top dollar for land that he had to return. As a matter of fact, the Mosaic Law appears to have been applied in a seven-year segment, not each person on seven years. Makes sense in a, in a society that would have had difficulty keeping um, coherent records. So, if it was two years until you got your land back, don't expect to get a lot of money. But then again, you don't need so much money because in two years, there's a redeal coming. Everything goes back to who it started with. Not the money. I'm the rich guy. When I got the land, I had servants galore and I could buy good seed and I could work the land and I could make that land turn a profit for me. And I don't have to give the profit back, just the land. When I start going, when I start analyzing what would this look like in a society, I'm fascinated. I don't know how you'd bring it forward. I suspect it would be something like the category of purchase you would make would have a limit. It would force people to buy not the house of their dreams when they're 22 and just married and spend their life in debt. Why is that bad? Well, people in debt make foolish decisions. People in debt wreck the market. I'll tell you why. I use an extreme example, but I think that it holds true in a lot of places. People in debt. Let's say I have pigs, because this is where it happened first, right? So I, I have a pig operation, and instead of growing it a few pigs at a time, I say, you know what I want? I want a big pig barn. And this big pig barn is going to uh, make me a lot of money. Because right now, for every pig I sell, I get $2 profit. 
and I got, well, let's make up numbers. I got a thousand pigs, so I got $2,000 profit every time a batch of pigs goes out. And, uh, well, good for me. But because I built this pig barn, and we'll just say for the sake of argument that it's 1986 in Minnesota, <laughs> uh, because this is what happened. Um, there were some there were some policies and some opportunities that made it seem wise to get yourself a big pig barn. But anyway, so then what happens? A lot of other people borrowed. And all of a sudden, there's a lot of pigs. And so what happens? Well, the price of pigs goes down so that instead of making a dollar out of each pig, I'm only making 75 cents. Well, I know what to do. I will grow more pigs. Well, what happens when I grow more pigs? The price goes down more. And what do I do when the price goes down? I grow more pigs. I increase my output. Why do I increase my output? Because I owe the bank. Now, in any other situation, what happens? If I own my pigs and uh, I find out that I'm not making money on pigs, I back off. And I say, <laughs> I'm certainly not going to work that hard to get less and less money. And you know what? What else could I grow in this barn? What else could I do with this? I get creative. But when I owe the bank, even if I am losing money, it's not how much money I'm losing, it's the rate at which I'm losing. So people were running their farms saying, I'm losing 23 cents for every pig that I send out of here. But if I shut it down with what I owe the bank, I can't afford it. I can afford to lose 23 cents a pig. And so what they do? They increase production. I am telling you that I think that happens across the board. So when you borrow money for long periods of time, you interact with the economy in a much different way. And the biggest, the biggest problem for what's just a normal householder is that you have this house and you have this debt. And things come for sale when there's a surplus. Okay, when somebody has a surplus of something and you want it, you get a good deal and they get a good deal. Because they would rather sell their surplus at a lower price than have it sit around. But you can't stock up when all your money goes straight to pay off your house and you just have a, a simple budget for the food you can afford, you can't stock up. When, when, when the things you want are cheap, you can't buy them. And so what happens? Well, then you can't stand your life. So as soon as you have enough wiggle room, you make payments on your boat. Because even though there were boats every fall cheap that you could have bought, you couldn't buy them because you had your debt. So you have to borrow money on the boat that you never get to take out because you're so busy working to pay for your boat and your house and on and on and on it goes. Okay, there was another tier of redistribution and that was when you made such a mess of your life. 
you, you really were making bad decisions one after another. The, the land was gone. You'd gotten a redeal on the land. It was gone again. And you finally said, you know what? I am going to have to sell myself as a slave. It's like, oh, what a horrible thing. No. You need to understand that racial slavery is a horrible thing. But surrendering yourself after you have proven that you cannot make good decisions, surrendering yourself to somebody who will guide you in exchange for the labor he can get from you is a whole lot better than being given sustenance. Because you're playing the game. Sure, you're playing the game as someone else's pawn, but you are playing the game. So even if you could sign up for housing and food and be given it, you would be happier saying. And it wasn't like you sold yourself into slavery to whoever. There's a whole bunch of laws that said exactly how your master ought to treat you. You got to, and, and, and if you were going to sell yourself into slavery, you didn't find the meanest guy. You found the nicest guy, because you could show up on his doorstep Seriously, read it. You could show up on the doorstep and say, Hey, I've watched you, and I think you'd be a decent master. I want to be your slave. I mean, I don't want to be your slave, but since I need someone to lead my life, you're the one I pick. I don't know if you can hear it. Sounds like it's a rainstorm coming through, but it's the funniest thing. When I hang up my pack, I shake the tree, and little icicles come showering down. It's a beautiful night to be out. So, you sell, you sell, your, you sell yourself into slavery. And even then, every 49 years, there's a redeal on that. No, no, that might, that might not work out well if you look at how long. It was a 49-year year of Jubilee. So again, they didn't track it per person. So you might be 10 years to the year of Jubilee. Or you might have 48 years to go. But what I'm telling you, absolutely amazing, I think, that thousands of years ago, a very coherent set of moral norms was built that specifically addressed the question that socialism tries to deal with today. If you don't like socialism, you got a lot of reasons not to. First of all, it's never worked. It's not an organic system. It's a theoretic system. And it hasn't worked. And believing that it'll work under whoever is probably foolish. But it is an attempt to answer a question. And arguing against it for all of these other reasons I think is foolish. What I think we need to do as followers of Jesus Christ is to say, we have the answer. You are valuable. Your life has meaning. Let's let you connect to that meaning. Let's set in a redeal. 
And let's live together. That is my thoughts on socialism. It's probably more. I don't know. But this should sort of finish up this segment. Hope you enjoyed it. I, you can hear in the background a grinding noise. Maybe that's my fan. It's time to... Actually, I'll walk over there and do it. It's time to load my stove for the night. So, uh... Got to come over to my outdoor furnace. Open up this glowing bed of coals. I wish you could uh, see it and enjoy it with me. But since you can't, I will say good night to you. Talk to you again down the trail.